Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And so, we actually took a walk yesterday. I was going to say, you know what? That was going to be my astonishment. Oh. Yesterday, <laughs> we actually met and took a walk because as of today, I am two weeks post-second vaccine. And I know you're two weeks post-second vaccine tomorrow, tomorrow. right? Mm-hmm. So that means moving forward, we can resume our practice of actually walking in person and then making the podcast. And that is just this huge gift. And I hate every single thing about the pandemic. And um, I am also aware that there are so many things about my life and I love, I, I love my life and I am happier than I ever imagined I would be. And there were so many things about my life that were so wonderful that I thought I appreciated them and then losing them for a time has just made me realize how, like, made me appreciate them anymore. So that does not make me believe that the pandemic was a good thing. Um, It does not make me resigned to what has happened, but I'm just aware that, um, you know, I just see things more clearly than I even than I did before. And I thought, anyway, so it was glorious to be in person and taking a walk yesterday and really exciting to think about picking that part of my life up again. Well, I was really happy to see you uh, yesterday. I was like, oh yes, you're a whole live person, <laughs> not just a face on my screen. But I didn't realize until later yesterday how good that was for my soul. Like, I was like, oh, I really needed that walk and that talk. I mean, I felt better um, later that he was like, oh, why do I feel so good? Oh yeah, because I had that time. And um, you and I joked uh, yesterday as we were walking uh, because pre-pandemic, it didn't happen every day or every week when we walked, (laughs) but it happened so often that it seemed like every week, like Kate and I walked this office park um, uh, in the town where she lives, just outside the city. And inevitably someone stops us and asks for direction. And yesterday that happened. Uh, and it's like, we're, we we must look nice and approachable and whatever. I don't know. It was know. this moment of like, and we're back. Yes. <laughs> like, now, this is normal. This is everything normal. Everything is, I know it, it is. Um, I just think we've talked, one of the reasons we wanted to make this podcast um, to the extent that anyone cares what we think and is listening to the extent that we have anything <laughs> valuable to put out in the world. One of the things that we both agree is very valuable for humans in general, for Christians in particular, and for people who are pastors, particularly in particular, is just the goodness and the necessity of friendship. Yeah. Um, That it's something that the world sees as like a nice to have, but not an essential or a distraction. And that it really is, I think, just a key component of the body of Christ. Um, Jesus says, you know, I call you friends, like, and especially for for people in ministry, it just, um, I, I think it's really important in terms of 
staying healthy and brave um, and focused on Christ to just to have friendships and to model that. And so I think like we've stayed connected all through the pandemic and that has been great. But when we are connecting over Zoom, you know, like we, I mean, and we, and we do talk, but when we are talking over the phone or on Zoom, it tends to be very much like, hey, I called to ask you this question Mm -hmm. or I, you know, what are we going to make this podcast about? Okay, let's go. Um, but I mean, it is a gift, like when we are taking a walk together, then it really is just kind of like, Hey, what's happening in your life. And that, I mean, it doesn't have to happen, but it's just, it's a huge gift. And I feel like too many people in the body of Christ have, um, taken, we've taken our cues from the culture instead of from the gospel. And it feels like, okay, we're coming together to be the church and to like get ish done. (laughs) And like, we need to do ministry with people. We need, but like, you know, we're, we're important and we have important work to do. And, and like, there's no time or there's no reason to just enjoy being in relationship with people. Like everything has to be functional and that's empire culture. That is not, there's no functionality to relationship inside the kingdom. Like we don't use people. We, are in relationship with people mediated by Christ and we enjoy God with people and God doesn't use us. And so I just think that, yeah, I mean, it's really good because that's what friends do. They get together not to do something or to solve a problem, but just to spend time for the sheer goodness of being in relationship. And so it was great. And um, also, elephant in the room is um, like, we think it's really important to model for people that, you know, men and women can be friends in the body of Christ, that this kinship and siblingship is really healthy and holy. And I, you know, feel really blessed as the raging extrovert in our friendship that I have lots of friends. And I will say like the majority of my friends are women. And I, I like, that's great. And also I'm really grateful for men in my life who are my friends and it, you know, it's, it's really good. And, um, so we, we really wanted to model that. So I, yeah, like I missed you friend. And I feel like I haven't even (laughs) not, you know, it was just really, I think people would be surprised, um, to hear the vows we take as ministers in the Presbyterian church, you know, this is the kind of stuff you would expect. Like, do you promise to serve Jesus, you know, with all your strength and with energy and love and all that kind of, you know, holy sounding stuff. You uphold the peace, purity purity and and unity of the church. But it's the pup, right? Peace, purity, or peace, unity, and purity of the church. Yes. Yes. And I think people would be surprised at the vow that we take that says, do you promise to be a friend among your colleagues? Mm-hmm. Right, that, that really, it doesn't have to be there, but it has to be there. Like, I, I don't, yeah, yeah it, it is, it's an odd thing, but it is, it's beautiful and wonderful. And I'm really glad it's there. Well, and it's one thing that differentiates, like when you, I mean, not that you take a vow when you take a job in a company, but like, mm-hmm. whatever, you fill out your employment contract or your yearly goals, like mm-hmm. there, there might be something in there that says, I'll treat my colleagues with respect, or I will, you know, 
speak and behave in a way that promotes a healthy workplace culture, but there's no expectation that you should be friend, like that your company doesn't care if you're friends with people you work with. And I think it's something to said, like the church is not a factory. It's not a company, it's a community. And so, yes, mm-hmm. like we are friends and it reminds me, um, like a couple of years ago, my friend, um, our friend, Robert Ostell, who is another Presbyterian pastor in our presbytery. And he and I got to be friends because we served on a presbytery committee together. And as far as I'm concerned about the only valuable thing of being on committees is the opportunity to become friends with people. Um, So we (laughs) served on a committee together and we became friends. And then, you know, Robert and I um, just share a lot of core beliefs in common about Jesus and the church. Um, And I've learned a lot from him, a lot from him. Um, And we hold different understandings of scripture when it comes to human sexuality. And this was, I mean, years ago, like 10, 10 years ago, um, the denomination was taking a, a vote on whether or not to change I believe at the time it was ordination standards. Mm -hmm. So could folks who were gay be ordained as pastors? And Robert was serving in a function where he was um, helping to create the, whatever the, the structure for the meeting wherein this vote would be taken. And he came to me and he was like, hey, would you, um, would you give the speech encouraging people to vote I mean, I can't remember how it was phrased, but he's basically saying like, will you give the speech encouraging people to vote that to change the standards so that gay people will be ordained? And I'm going to give the speech encouraging folks to not change the standard. And and I was like, well, I don't really want to do that because we had taken the vote two years ago and I had given the speech on that side two years ago. And I was just like, I mean, you know me, I'm happy to talk out loud and have people look at me all day long. (laughs) But it seems kind of like, you know, it should, somebody else should get a chance to do that. And he was like, no, I really, I think that we should do it because we're friends. And -hmm. it's important that we can model to the presbytery that even though we disagree about this issue and it matters to us, like it matters, um, but we are friends and we don't think that the other person is garbage or whatever. So it's really interesting. So we were taking, we did it and he, um, and, and there was a, um, like it was a thing. And so there was a somebody from the paper who was there and was writing about it. And like, after we gave our speeches and we sat down and like, we sat next to each other in presbytery meetings because we often would. And the um, reporter called me afterwards to like get more comments. And he was like, and we had said like explicitly as we were giving our speeches, like I am giving this and we are friends. And the point of this is we want people to know that we don't have to demonize whatever. And so he- the reporter called to get follow-up quotes from both of us and was like, I noticed you all sat next to each other and it seemed like you were talking all the way through. And I was like, yeah, cause we're friends. <laughs> and he was like, I know you said that, but like, wow. you're really friends. And I was like, yeah, we're really friends like that. I just think it was so interesting to realize how, um, you know, like that's really revelatory Mm-hmm. Um, and just something that is a real witness to the world that we can love people and disagree about things that really matter. Um, and, you know, it just, it was a really interesting thing. So I do just feel like, yeah, like to have a friend, 
to have the gift, the huge gift and blessing of being able to spend time together. And, you know, we can sort of take that for granted and it can seem just normal and like something everyone gets and it's not. And so it was great and I'm astonished and I want to talk about it and encourage other people to say like, if I don't have friends in my life, um, you know, I don't want people to feel guilty about it. I don't want people to feel ashamed, but I want people to realize like, oh, I'm missing out on something that is completely possible, mm. ab- free and attainable that could just bring so much richness and health and goodness into my life. And I want to um, make some friends. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think that is especially important for men because we are terrible, especially once we reach adulthood, uh, adulthood in making friends. Um, when I look back, I have many of the friends I have um, because women in the church reached out to me, mm-hmm. right? My friend Jeannie that I went to seminary with, second day of Hebrew class turned around and introduced herself and said, we should be friends. It's like, well, okay. Um, I'm friends with you primarily because you said, hey, we live in the same town. We should walk. We should have coffee. Right. Mm-hmm. And I I found that whenever I've moved um, to different presbyteries, rarely does a man, um, a, a, a male colleague call me and say, hey, let's go out to lunch. Um, it's usually a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, of, of the men that I know who have friends, they tend to have friends with women. And I, I think for exactly the reason that you named, it's not because there's anything inappropriate going on. It's because men are taught to devalue friendship and to mm-hmm. devalue the kind of just like um, sharing and vulnerability and authenticity yeah. that makes friendship possible. Yeah. So it makes it very difficult for men to be friends mm-hmm. with one another because um, they don't feel safe showing up as their full authentic selves in, mm-hmm. an, in selves in relationship with another man in the way that it can feel just very normal with other women. And I think that's a great example of a way that I think like, you know, we talk about big systems like the patriarchy and obviously it has huge um, disadvantages for women in terms of safety and, you know, rape culture and the ability to, um, you know, flourish and work and have what you need. And, um, but for men, there are a lot of external intrinsic advantages Um, but I think that it is this huge soul wound Mm. of, you know, getting told that you have to show up in the world in this kind of way. And, and that makes it really difficult to, you know, have, have the kinds of relationships that actually nourish, nourish your soul and let you flourish in a like social, emotional way. So anyway. All right, enough of this. Even I am like, I'm not really a touchy-feely person. So we've now crossed the boundaries of <laughs> how much I feel. You are like not, not touchy-feely. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Um, so what's astonishing you? 
Well, um, I had a meeting with the elders of Dorada Church on Monday, and those elders decided that we are being led by the Lord to return to in-person services on the second Sunday in July. And um, I'm very excited about that. And ever had the experience of hearing yourself talk? And as you listen to yourself, it's almost as if you're listening to someone else. It's like the words are coming out of you, but you're observing yourself. You know what I'm talking about? That's yeah. not just an introverted thing. Okay. So I had that experience in this meeting because after we had this vote, I launched into this speech unplanned about the church getting a different kind of pastor um, when we return. Not, not that they would replace me or that I was quitting or anything like that, but that I'm a different person post-pandemic, that this pandemic has changed me. And I just launched into the speech and I really need to examine more um, about how I think I'm different after or because of this pandemic. But um, one of the things I named uh, was, you know, I have a tendency to, just because of my wiring as an introvert, but also um, to navigate racism in the society. I often uh, just kind of uh, take a place in the corner. I watch, I listen, I observe. Um, usually not the first to speak. Um, uh, and, and often when I'm in a space outside of my home, I often don't show up as my full authentic self, that I'm, I'm always hiding bits and pieces. One, <laughs> to... Um, to spare other people, because I think it might be too much. Like if they, if they really heard me say this, or if they really knew the the full impact of what I think about this, or if I just showed up in my full self, it would just be too much for people. And so I often dim my own light, and I'm I'm just kind of done with that. Now, not that I'm going to stop being an introvert. But I'm going to stop. I, I just feel a new sense of boldness, mm -hmm. uh, a sense of, of owning where I am in life and what I think. And holy cow, I'm about to turn 50 in a couple of months. Um, you know, and often I live and move and show up in spaces like a newbie. And like, no, I don't know everything, but I know some stuff. Yeah. And I am feeling just much more assertive and clear and um, just understanding vision. And at the same time, in the midst of all the mess that the world is in, in the midst of um, the trauma that uh, we've been going through, I feel a renewed trust in God as well. So it's just, it's just an odd time. I am a different person um, as we go back to uh, in-person services. And I told elders, you guys, you need to be, I'm trying to prepare you for um, uh, 
for how I'm going to show up uh, mm -hmm. in worship from now on, um, because I've been trying to not overwhelm you with, I didn't say this, but this is kind of what I meant. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to be too black. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just done with that. Well, I think like from my perspective, there's a, um, there's a real, there's a very real and authentic um, ethos that you have that you, you want to pour into people and you want to build them up and you want people to experience just the joy of the Lord and flourishing. And that's very authentic and real. And also, um, we live in a, I mean, we live in a white supremacist culture. And so there's all kinds of ways that um, people of color and women are told, like, if you show, if you, if you show up in a particular way, you will be punished or you won't be hurt. So you sort of have to constantly, not even consciously nuance how how you say what you say to make sure that people can hear it, right? Which and, is exhausting. Yes. And I think like, you know, both of those things have combined, as I see it just after knowing you for 10 years, that you spend a lot of time out of a sincere love for the Lord and the people God has called you to serve, um, speaking truth in a way that will cause the least amount of discomfort and pain towards your hearers mm -hmm. and really centering their comfort and, and your perception of what they can handle. Um, and I think I hear you sort of saying like, oh, nobody asked me to do that. Um, and it may not be good for them. That may not well, be the it, best yeah. thing for them. Yeah. Right? And I think that's, that's the real, the real huge, like blinding light of saying like, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say nobody asked you to do that. Everybody asks us to do that, but, right. mm -hmm. um, but the Lord doesn't ask us to do this. And this idea that, I, and I think we all get this. I mean, I certainly um, thought really up until we got into the middle of church transformation that my, if I was doing my job faithfully as a pastor, everyone would love me and experience the church as a happy place to be. Like everything they discovered at the church would be something that would make them feel good. And so if people did not feel good, I felt like I had failed to be a faithful pastor. Mm -hmm. And I think like, it's not like anybody explicitly like stood up at the front of some class in seminary and said that, <laughs> but that's what I absorbed along the way. And so, you know, it really took coming to a point of crisis in, in the church and realizing like, oh, people don't feel good and people don't love me. And I feel like I failed. Have I, <laughs> you know, and really having to wrestle with, well, I held that value. Does that value come from Jesus as revealed to me in scripture, God as revealed to me in scripture or the presence of the Holy spirit in my life? And the answer is no, no, and no. So I think, and I think we've, I mean, we talk about this a lot personally. I don't know if on the podcast, but like, I don't ever want to have a spirit of like, like it or leave it. Or, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're garbage or you don't have that. Like I know pastors who protect mm -hmm. their hearts by just not caring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I want to care mm -hmm. always. I, and people always have to matter. Um, but not, 
not at the expense of lying about what the gospel is or, or lying about who I am or lying about our experience. And I think especially trying to lead healthy and holy multi-ethnic churches, like if you as a leader, people look and are like, oh, we have a black pastor who's our leader, but, but you or other people in the community have to constantly consciously negotiate their blackness in order to participate, then you have the appearance of being the community that you actually don't have the reality of being. And that's really, um, you know, that's really harm filled for, for everyone and, and counterproductive. Like, honestly, at least when your communities are totally segregated, you can see that there's a problem, but if, if that same lack of freedom to be a real flawed human doesn't exist in a multi-ethnic church, then it makes people think like, oh, multi-ethnic churches don't work and aren't God's will. And it would be better for us to be separated because that's the only way we can be authentic. And I, I mean, I hear people say that, like, I, I mean, I hear people of color saying that like multi-ethnic churches are toxic because they require people of color to, um, you know, code switch and lie and center the comfort of white people because if people feel uncomfortable, they point at the people who are making them feel uncomfortable and accuse them of being unloving and unfaithful to Jesus. Now that's not true, but again, because I guess all of us have absorbed a faithful church will make me feel good, we believe it's true. And again, like if you just take that assumption and run it against scripture, you'll be like, oh, (laughs) I I mean, it's actually kind of rare in scripture that people are in the presence of the Lord and feel like, oh my gosh, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) So I think just that unlearning is really important. And also like, how sad would it be for any of us to have lived through the year that we have lived through, to have had the privilege of surviving the year that we have just survived and to come out on the other side without having changed, without having grown, without having learned true things. Like that would be, I mean, that would really be um, the worst kind of betrayal of all Mm. the losses that people have um, suffered. But I'm sure that that made people in the room very uncomfortable And I'm sure that experience of like listening to yourself talk as another person is like, oh, this is really the spirit in me talking because this was, you don't talk, like I all the time talk without planning anything. You never speak without knowing exactly what you're going to say and why you're going to say it. So for you in a meeting to be like, I heard myself giving a speech, I'm like, oh man. (laughs) And that's why it was so astonishing. It just came out and it was like, I must say this right now. And, and it came out as I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time. Yep. That this is happening. Well, and what's great about that is a, you've had an experience of being an extrovert <laughs> because I mean, so often, and this is terrible, but so often I'm in a meeting and I'm like, I'm going to die if I can't say what I need to say right now. Like I, like I am like in physical pain. I need to say this so much. And, but beyond that, like, I think that's really important because I mean, A, you were being honest. So truth matters. 
Um, but B, everybody should be ready for everybody to be different, right? Like we can't go back into our communities and have an expectation that everyone we meet is, is exactly the same person when we last saw them, you know, 14 months ago, like we're all different. We've all changed. And so to say like, how can we be a community where we cannot, um, you know, we don't have to pretend that we were meeting for the first time, but we can also sort of come in with an awareness of, I, I want, this is all about reestablishing and rebuilding my relationship with you and really, you know, being a place that you can be honest with me about, you know, I used to do this and now I do that. And this used to be important to me. And now that is more important to me. And that, I mean, that's really important because I mean, in whatever, think of like the gospel of John, when Jesus is like, you know, if you're in me, if you're in the vine, you'll bear much fruit. And if you bear much fruit, I'm going to prune you so you can bear even more. Like we should always be changing and growing and producing not necessarily more fruit, but new, mm. new fruit and different fruit. And yeah, that's cool. I wish I'd been a fly on the wall. Well, I did not connect to that experience until just now with uh, the experience of an extrovert, but I'm like, oh, so that's what it's like. Because I really did have this sense of, if I don't say this, I'm just going to explode. It's like, yep. and it just came out. Wow. So that's what it's like. Wow. It's like, that's what wow. it's like. <laughs> it's um, simultaneously wonderful and terrible. <laughs> So what are you thinking about? Um, well, I am thinking a lot, as I think almost everyone in the world is thinking right now about what happened in Minneapolis um, and the murder of Dante Wright by a police officer. And I'm watching um, people process that mainly through social media, um, because we're still in our separate homes. Um, and I am noticing something that really troubles me and particularly um, about people, um, some of my colleagues within the Presbyterian Church USA, which is our denomination. Um, one of the, um, there's a there's a real significant um, community within the PCUSA that um, and and I'm happy about this who who's really um, are intentional about being in relationship with um, our brothers and sisters in the Palestinian community. Um, so many of whom happen to be Christians, um, but also I mean just sort of really feeling. Um, a, um, a, an unction um, to bear witness to the suffering and the injustice of the Palestinian people um, and the ways that um, the Israeli government in an attempt to protect its citizens um, and protect its sovereignty, um, you know, often will say, seize the land of Palestinians, confiscate property, and just sort of the brutal militarization of 
um, Palestinian territories and the ways that um, Palestinians, particularly Palestinian young people are often brutalized by Israeli soldiers and police and the kinds of tragedies that happen um, at military checkpoints. And um, I see my colleagues within the PCUSA um, just advocating for um, the right of Palestinians to exist um, with peace and dignity and have justice. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I think that that's correct. And I think that advocating for justice and safety and peace for Palestinians is not at all anti-Israel um, or anti-Israeli. I think it is um, pro-Israel. Like, you know, I, I think that a two-state solution is in everyone's best interest. And I think that, um, you know, the very real danger um, that Israel and Israelis um, experience um, from terrorism, that's real. And it does not mean um, that very real fear does not mean that the um, murder and extended imprisonments and lack of justice for, that doesn't make that justified for Palestinians, like to collectively punish an entire ethnicity of people who are citizens of your country. Like that's not okay. So I'm glad um, that people in our denomination advocate for Palestinians as part of their Christian identity. I think it's really important. And I notice that there are people who will post articles and speak with great passion and clarity when a Palestinian youth is killed or terrorized by Israeli soldiers. And I notice when those same voices have nothing to say about instances like what happened when Dante Wright was murdered by police. And I know that if Dante Wright had been a Palestinian murdered by an Israeli soldier, people would speak out. Though some of these people would speak out and be, I think, righteously, rightfully proud to advocate for justice. And yet, when the same kind of militarization and over-policing happens in our nation, all of a sudden, it's a situation that cause that calls for more review and nuance and both sides. And I just am tired of people in the denomination positioning themselves as champions for justice and the powerless on the other side of the world, but having nothing to say when the very same tactics are happening against Black Americans. Mm. It is hypocritical and I'm tired of it. And that does not mean that I don't want people to advocate for Palestinians. I want people to pretend that black people in America are Palestinians and Israel. And whatever you would say on behalf of folks in Palestine, say it on behalf of people in your own nation. And, um, you know, but obviously we know why it's easier to advocate for something on the other side of the world than it is to advocate for something in your own neighborhood. And when you advocate for Palestinians in America, you will alienate some of your Jewish brothers and sisters and neighbors, but they're not giving to your church. <laughs> but when you advocate 
for Black Americans. And when you ask to hold American police officers accountable, you are going to offend and alienate some Christians within your own congregations. And I'm saying like either talk about both or talk about neither, mm -hmm. but it's the same power dynamic. That's wow. what I'm well, um, I'm thinking about the same um, situation, uh, the same murder, the same police brutality. Um, but I am thinking about um, the permission we need to give one another, we being African-Americans need to give one another to um, engage and disengage. Mm -hmm. Now, part of what this kind of trauma is designed to do, it's designed to um, create in us an anxiety, a fear, mm -hmm. um, a paralysis mm -hmm. that um, keeps us in our place. And on the one hand, we feel a pressure to constantly be engaged. And I just believe we have to give ourselves permission at times to not watch the images, to not hear the news stories. Like we, we know the news stories, but there are some times when we need to take a breath so that we can re-engage mm -hmm. um, because the struggle for us is not new. Um, well, I mean, we've been struggling since we've been on this continent. Um, we're, we're just in a particular kind of wave now. Um, and when I first heard about this latest murder, I remember hearing the initial story and thinking, okay, I just, I can't today. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't, I just can't, mm -hmm. um, you know, having, you know, a, a black son. It's like, I, I just can't today. And it took me about a day. It's like, okay, now I can engage. Now I can listen. And we just have to, for the sake of our own um, humanity and psychology and strength, give ourselves permission to do that. And, that, and that's hard when you don't want to have to do that. Like, I, I don't want to disengage, but I know I need to at times, just so that the weight of it doesn't crush, which is it which it's designed to do. Mm -hmm. So in, in order to continue to fight this thing, I have to look away for a moment and then say, okay, I'm ready. Um, and, and, and that's just what I've been thinking about this week. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, so this um, is spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's really important that people understand, like I think when you say this is designed to, I mean, you didn't say this, but you know, to steal, kill and destroy, like it mm -hmm. is designed oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. to make, right. And I think that some people would hear that and go, 
what are you talking about? Like nobody got together in a room and had a meeting and said like, okay, here's the plan. Let's have certain officers stop me, right? So they'll say like, that's not true. That didn't happen. It wasn't designed. It just happened. And I need people to understand like, we have an enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bible calls him by many names. One of them is Satan. Mm -hmm. Again, the Bible talks all the time about what spiritual warfare is and how we need to resist it. Now, the enemy is wise, not dumb. Um, When the enemy showed up to tempt Jesus to divert from God's plan into um, and turn away from God, just as the enemy showed up in the garden and said like, hey, God's plan is dumb. God's limits are dumb. Do it my way and you can have everything and it'll be better. Um, When when the enemy shows up, the enemy shows up on quotes scripture and shows up Mm -hmm. with the appearance of an angel of light, right? Like Satan doesn't show up in our life and say, hey, do you want to be evil? Like, do you want to still kill and destroy? That's not how the enemy shows up. The enemy shows up and invites you to do something good, something better, right? Like the the snake did not show up to even say, hey, you want to defy God? (laughs) The snake showed up and said, don't you want to know? good and evil? And don't you want to be like God, right? The invitation is always to something good, not to something bad. And so was there a plan of police officers who sat down together and had a secret society? And no, I don't think. Is there a plan in the spiritual realm against the powers and principalities in high places? Yes. And is this designed to still kill and destroy life from everyone, one kind of wound for people of color, a different kind of soul, deeper deforming wound for white people, and to to sow enmity and hatred and division among God's people? Yes, 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 and yes. So I think for, for people of color to say, this is true, and this is real, and it must be resisted, and also I will not I will not give it the power to define my life and to poison every aspect of my reality is an act of defiance and resistance. And I think white people, we don't, we don't do that. Like, because we so often without thinking disengage from this reality that when we are aware, we choose to engage every time, like every time. And then whatever. You can disengage on Sabbath if you're taking a media fast. Otherwise, every time you engage, because our reality is that we don't have to engage. And the reality of people of color is it is impossible not to engage. And so what we need to do is um, bear one another's burden and, and be in solidarity with one another. And that requires, I think, people of color taking the privilege that white people have of being able to live in a psychological space where that's not their defining reality and white people doing everything in our power to say, this is the reality that my brothers and sisters for whom Christ died lived in, live in all the time. And, you know, I was talking to another friend this morning and we were saying like, you hear these comments, sincere comments, often from white Christians saying like, if you would stop talking about racism, it would go away. Stop talking about it. And it'll go away. And if I'm I knew saying, that's all we had to do. Holy cow. <laughs> well, but the thing is, wow. For a white person, that's true. Mm. If you would stop talking about it, I get it. Racism would go away for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all I want is to not experience the reality of racism. So, like, I don't care if you experience it. 
I just don't want to experience even the discomfort of thinking about it. So if you people of color would stop talking about it, then racism would disappear for me as a white woman. Because I don't experience it in my flesh. I only experience it when you talk about it. So I think that's the thing. Like they're not lying. They're telling the truth, which is I don't want to deal with this. And if you stop talking about it, then I don't have to deal with it. Of course, if you stop talking about it, you still will have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But I don't care if you have to deal with it. Or I'll tell myself, actually, it's that not that bad either. No, I'll tell myself that you don't have to deal with it either if you don't talk about it. Mm. And I'll just tell myself that you don't see yourself or your son or your father or your brother in all of those images. And you don't feel afraid when you are walking around and it doesn't have a psychological impact on you and you're not in any danger. I'll tell myself that that's true for you. And I'll be then mad at you that you can't just live in that reality. And that's just- yeah. And, and the irony is those same folks- when asked to wear a mask, they know lose their minds because my rights are being taken away. It's like, how? or the same people will say, like, I read, you know, because of 9 11, I'll never feel safe on an airplane again, right? Statistically, right. is that likely to happen to you? No, you know it's not likely to happen to you, but you know that you have very real psychological trauma because it did happen to someone and it could happen to you. And you can't just snap your fingers and go like, oh, that's not real. I mean, the same way, um, you know, knowing that, um, you know, most children are not going to be molested. So why are you worried that there are, you know, most children are not going to be kidnapped. So why are you worried about, you know, you don't just say like, well, let's stop talking about child molestation. Let's stop talking about kidnapping. And then it won't happen. We don't say that because we go, well, that could happen to my kid. So we need to talk about it to protect my children. But for white people, we look at the same thing and we go like, well, I'm not going to get hurt by the police if I get pulled over. So if you could stop like making my social media feed depressing, I'd appreciate it um, or I demand it. Honestly, I demand it. Yeah, 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 wow. Yeah. Oh, so well, what are you preaching? <laughs> I'm preaching about boundaries um, because we are in a community. So we're in a worship session on um, series on practices. Um, and during the week, we're talking about individual practices that we can undertake that can form us in Christ, help us grow up to the full stature of Christ, as Ephesians 4.13 says. Um, and then on Sunday mornings, we're talking about communal practices because God interacts with us individually and calls us together to be a people. And too often as American Christians, we're very focused on our individual identity and relationship with Jesus. And we're really indifferent or blind to the way that our communities form and shape us. Um, and I basically... I'm going to be talking about boundaries and just trying to sort of unlearn some things that we've all picked up along the way that like to bear with somebody in love means to lie about how you feel and what you need and to um, give people what they want or what will make them feel good, even at the detriment of your own soul. Like we've all been taught, I mean, especially women, but I think all Christians have been taught that love means um, obligatory 
painful sacrifice. And so just kind of want to unlearn that. And I mean, you and I have talked before about like, again, if we want our multi-ethnic communities to be healthy and holy, then they need to be spaces where people can be authentically who they are and tell the truth. And that truth is going to be um, uncomfortable. And we have to have the expectation that if somebody makes you uncomfortable, that doesn't necessarily mean they've sinned against you. <laughs> and that again, also, if someone sins against you, Jesus doesn't want you to just swallow it down. Jesus wants you to go, in fact, commands you to go to the person and to tell them. And so confrontation is like this bad word. And I hate confrontation, but it is a biblical imperative because if you're not going to tell the truth about what's uncomfortable, then you can only have a fake relationship. And God isn't interested in fake. God is interested in real. And you can never be prophetic. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, that, like to everything we've been talking about today, if you just got to make people feel good, then that means you have to lie to them. And like, I don't know, I don't have the whole Bible memorized, but isn't that like legitimately one of the things that Jesus says and in the latter days, like, you know, you, people just lie to you and deceive you. And that's what happens. People lie to you and deceive you and say, everything's fine. You're fine. Everything is good. And it's not. So what about you? What are you preaching about? Well, um, I am continuing, um, uh, to reflect on, um, my time with elders on Monday night. Um, cause I gave more than one speech that night. <laughs> so there was a, there was another speech, but it was in response. And I wish I could remember there was a question or comment from one of the elders about me smiling. And before I really thought about a response, I said something like, um, I am, I always think the future is bright. I always have hope for the future. It's like, that's just, that's just a settled thing in me. I, I do not doubt the goodness of the future. And, um, again, I observed myself saying that's like, okay, that's, that's, that came from a very deep place. And that morning, um, I had, uh, read through, uh, the lectionary text for Sunday uh, from uh, the one from First John, chapter three, that says, "Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Um, what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know that we'll be like Him uh, when He appears. Uh, we we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." And so I'm thinking about um, a sermon with a title, something like. Um, why I still, emphasis on the word still, have hope for the future. And mm -hmm. um, so, and, and just reflecting on that text and that little mini speech I gave to the elders, um, there's something about, in spite of the racism that I am forced to navigate, there is deep within me a settled place of my belovedness. And, and, and that gives me hope. Like I know I am the beloved. And I think for 
some who would be in my place or be in the place of African-Americans, they would say, well, how can you think that God loves you when your people have gone through and continue to go through? And I said, well, just, just look at the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They were the chosen people and spent hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt, still the chosen people, still the beloved of God. So that does not change my status. And so that's just settled within me. And also the part of the text, um, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. Like, mm -hmm. so no matter what, I know that something unimaginably good is coming. Um, mm -hmm. And it has something to do with being transformed by a vision of Christ when he returns. And that mm -hmm. somehow I will reflect that glory, be changed by it. And I think the clearest picture we get, I know I don't know if that's I don't know if this is scripture or not, but in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrected body, the, the image that comes to mind is the difference between an acorn and an oak tree, right? There's, there's continuity there, but there's a big difference between an acorn and an oak tree. And so that the glory that will be revealed in me and all believers in that day will be that big of a difference. And so the, the future is bright in spite of the mess that we see around us. And yeah, and what I love that is like, I mean, judgment and lament is real and necessary and we can't skip those parts, but it, but it is also like, we're not being asked to sacrifice anything, right? Like we're not, like, I think that's what's really important for, for especially white people to see like we like there's no again like like we're not trying to go back to a time where it was good and we've like we haven't devolved we haven't lost anything and we're not being asked to sacrifice anything good we are striving together towards an inevitable reality that is better for everyone shalom is the mutual flourishing of all things and like i long for a day when I can feed my children without thinking about other mothers who can't feed theirs. Mm. And how much more joy will it be for me to feed my children knowing that all children are fed? How, how much yeah. more joy is it for me to sing a lullaby and put my daughter in her crib and know that other mothers can lay their children down to sleep in safety? Like, like that's yeah. the thing is we're not being asked to give up anything and again like just to destroy that scarcity mindset that is coming from the devil who's a liar that like hold on to yours they're coming to get yours and to say like no there's an hours and there is a way that we can all flourish together and what is happening now is that we're choosing a lie that is such a derivative and distorted copy of the truth. And that like, I was doing some praying this week and thinking about that tag that's often at the end of so many traditional prayers. It's like, as it was in the beginning is, is now, now and ever, ever shall be. be. And I just kind of grew up with that as words. Like, that's just a thing. Like, and, and then I'm like, oh no, it's this idea that like 
as it was in the beginning, in the beginning, yeah. before the fall, when all was good and complete, mm-hmm. like that, as it was then, it is now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the deepest sense of reality, it is now, and it shall someday yeah. in the future forever be, right? So like yeah. that idea of like, oh, I suppose. And so when I say there's no again, like, I don't want to make America great again. I do want Eden again, right? Like there is a return. Well, N.T. Wright has, here's another place where N.T. Wright has helped me. Um, Because he has this focus on, focus on the renewal of creation, right? God in Christ has not only redeemed sinners, but is in the process of redeeming creation to create a new earth. And Wright reminds us, it's like, look, as we are, we are not fit for that new earth. We're, we're, we're just not. Because it, it just blows our minds to think of living in a world without sin and evil and death. It's like without scarcity, without, right? And he says, so what, what is happening now by the Spirit is that we are being transformed into the image of Christ to be able to fit into that world. And then when Christ comes, we'll be fully changed so that we will be ready, we'll be prepared to live in that that, uh, reality. And I think like, just to really quickly circle back to the conversation we were having earlier about Dante, right? Like so often when I see, and I'm talking about Christians sort of wrestling with and processing that, it feels like on both sides, people are like, well, I have to choose. Am I going to be for Dante Wright? Or am I going to be for Kim Potter's, the name of the officer, right? And you have some Christians saying like, Dante Wright, he was innocent, truly. He did not deserve to die, truly. It was murder, true, true. And then you see other Christians saying like, no, I'm going to stand with Kim Potter because her life matters and because she made a mistake and she deserves the benefit of the doubt. And also here's all this information about Dante, right? He wasn't perfect, you know, suggesting that that means it is he deserved it. important that yeah. he, right. And I'm saying like, no, <laughs> the, the reality is we are striving for a reality where not only does Dante Wright not have to die, but an officer isn't taught that they have to be willing to kill him. Right. Like mm-hmm. right now, our police officers are trained, and she was a trainer, are trained that the, the, the worthy people need to be protected from the unworthy people. So it's all like Jack Bauer in 24, like, are you good enough to do horrible things for the sake of the good, right? It is the myth of redemptive violence that we are so in love with, right? And we train our soldiers and our law enforcement officers that like, we need you to do this at at the sake of your own humanity. You know, you do this for us so that we can remain fully human. And there are some Christians who are like, that's a noble sacrifice and we need to be on her side. And I'm saying like, we do need to be on her side. We need to be on her side, imagining a world where no one yeah, feels like they have to do that, that we don't go through, ask people who sign up to serve and protect to go through a training process wherein they are taught to see some lives as subhuman and disposable, right? Like, is, was he murdered? 
Yes. Was her humanity murdered a long time ago? So is he the victim? Yes. Is she also a victim? Also, yes. Does that mean she's not responsible? No. But does it make me responsible as a right citizen who lives in a neighborhood where I don't mean, yes, right? Like it's just, it is not easy for one side to say, oh, if he had only complied, everything would be fine. And it's not as easy as the other side saying, she's an evil devil human piece of garbage. And if we could get rid of her, everything would be fine. No, sin is a web and we are all caught in it. And you don't just get to say, if we could get rid of that garbage person or that garbage person, everything would be fine. Everything's not fine. So I, I think that idea of like, let me preach what will be so that we can strive towards what will be and recognize that we can joyfully, you know, put on the armor of Christ and we can joyfully pick up our Christ and follow Jesus, not because we are martyrs as we've misunderstood the term, but because we are authentic martyrs who go off to die singing of the great and, privilege. And for too long, I think Christians have misunderstood preaching what will be as a way of- Accepting what is. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And right. that's not it at all. No. It's, it's It's the way of striving toward the goal. Right. It's preaching what will be, which then gives us the heart to resist yes. what is. And say there's another way because that's how Jesus did, right? Like he was able to resist what, how the temptations of the devil at the beginning and the crowds and everything at the end, like he knew I don't have to save my own life because there is a life more glorious and I will not conform to the powers and principalities of this world in order to save my life. I'll lay it down, trusting that God is going to resurrect it into something gloriously and eternally new. Mm. Well, fantastic. You have to go pick up your son. Thank you all for listening. We obviously really enjoy talking to each other and to you. If you want to find out more about Yolando's ministry at Derida, D-E-R-I-T-A, Prez, DeridaPrez.org is the website. Yeah. And if you want to hear um, archived messages from Derida, you should go to their Podbean website and search for Dorita Presbyterian Church and you can worship with them on Sundays um, at any time on Sunday. I think he's, it's usually posted by 6 a.m. Just go to their YouTube channel, Dorita Pres YouTube channel in Charlotte, North Carolina. And if you want to find out more about um, what is happening at the Grove Presbyterian Church where I serve, um, it is the Grove, thegrovechurch.org in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you can worship with us on our Facebook live stream at 10 a.m., which is as fun as virtual worship can be, <laughs> as interactive as virtual worship can be, seven, seven more Sundays. And if you want to find um, archived messages from The Grove, you can go to our um, podcast, The Grove Church Podcast on iTunes. <laughs> SoundCloud, uh, any anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find the Grove Church podcast. And so we thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>